Hi, this is David Bank. I'm here with Tim O'Reilly, the author of What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us, a new book. Tim is a longtime chronicler, analyst, forecaster, seer of technology and other trends, and he's got a fascinating read here that might introduce uh, impact investors and others uh, into a, a, a different kind of history than they may be used to, but has many uh, parallels and I think what you call rhymes with what is uh, uh, the, between the technology story and what we would call the impact story. Welcome, Tim. Uh, great to be with you. Uh, yes, just to be clear, the, uh, the title of the book is actually WTF. And uh, the reason I use it as the title and did this sort of play on what's the future is because WTF can be an expression of amazement or it can be an expression of shock and horror. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of both in the relationship between technology and the economy. And I really wanted to take what I've learned in the technology realm. And by the way, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur more than I'm a commentator. I've built a, a, you know, a platform for learning, which has really helped shape the, uh, you know, the Silicon Valley ethos and, and ability to create for the last 35 years. Uh, I stand corrected. And, and, and that platform has been super useful and super influential in, in promoting and expanding these, yeah. uh, these trends. Yeah. So, so, yeah, so the, the thing that I really wanted to get across in the book, first of all, I wanted to give really useful tools to entrepreneurs for thinking differently about what they do. You know, what's their business model, uh, how technology is changing, how to see the world in, in fresh ways and, and break through the sort of incrementalism that often uh, happens before we, we have these big breakthroughs when we actually really understand how to use a new technology. But I also really wanted to have a call to action to think differently about our responsibility as technologists to build a better world. And I talk a lot about why we don't and what keeps us from doing it. And that's the, you know, the heart of the why it's up to us. Right. There's the why we don't and what keeps us. And then I think you also have some great ideas on what the alternate model might be and how we could. So I want to get to that as well. I remember you said something in a public setting not too long ago that said, you know, it's not artificial intelligence that's taking away jobs, it's corporate CEOs. And it, there is something that you that very uh, important that you get to in the book, which is about the the human agency involved and the, and the systems that we live under and the, the assumptions we live under. Yeah, well, I think part of what we really have to come to grips with is, are we thinking about AI in the right way? And there's a great, there's a great tweet recently from Zainab Tufeki, uh, who's a professor at, uh, at UNC, uh, I believe, who, who talks a lot about the use of technology by repressive regimes. And she said, there's too much talk about fear of AI as if, uh, you know, some separate entity. The real question is, what will power do with with AI? And I have a, a very similar take, although I, I think uh, perhaps uh, a more, um, even more provocative one, which is that it may well be that AI will not be this separate entity that we think about, that it actually will be a kind of symbiosis of human and machine, 
that isn't just sort of people in power using, say, face recognition to pick protesters out of a crowd and then arrest them and you know, torture and kill them, which is something that has already happened, uh, but really that we are building a vast algorithmic system that rules our society. We are already building Skynet. And, and I, I kind of get at this by just sort of an exploration of how algorithmic systems work. You know, that there's all kinds of complexity and, and evolution of technology, but the humans give them a goal. And, and I actually use uh, the uh, analogy that algorithmic systems are a little bit like the genies of Arabian mythology, you know, where you give them your wish and you didn't phrase your wish quite right. And <laughs> then they go, they go haywire, you know, and, and this is what we see with Facebook and fake news, you know. Mark says, oh, we're going to build community. We're going to make connections between people. We're going to find all this real. We're going to create all this engaging content and this great advertising-based business. And you know, it turns out that hyper-partisan content is super engaging. It turns out that there are bad actors who figure this out and they figure out how to manipulate it with fake news. Uh, turns out that algorithmically based advertising will let you reach incredibly targeted populations. And again, uh, you know, profit seeking or, uh, you know, political actors have figured out how to use this. And there's all these unexpected effects. And so what I try to say is, okay, so you can, everybody can see it in fake news. And then I'm asking people in the financial community to look in the mirror and say, wait, we're also guided and creating an algorithmic system. And, you know, Facebook, you know, had this idea, we're going to try to create engagement. What's our rules? What are the rules that we're living by? And it seems to me that there was a time, uh, you know, particularly after World War II, uh, this golden age, uh, where we were actually driven by fear of what happened between World War One and World War Two, which was people were out of work, you know, that led to fascism, it led to another world war, and so we basically focused on rebuilding, uh, you know, the uh, you know Europe and Japan and and lifting them up. We focused on all the soldiers who came back, you know, helping them find jobs. Uh, get an education, build homes, invest in businesses, farms. You look at all the advertising. It was all centered on our goal of the human. And then, you know, make, making things work for people. And then we had this magical, seemingly magical economic period where inequality was low. And yes, there were a lot of factors that drove that, um, you know, uh, but uh, there was, was this decision that we were going to take care of all those people because we, we'd seen the bad consequences when you don't. After World War I, they punished the victims. Uh, after World War II, we, we, you know, we lifted them up. After World War I, the returning veterans uh, you know, became homeless. Uh, and of course, we're doing that again now. Uh, you know, but after World War II, we invested in them. And so somewhere around 1970, I kind of trace it uh, to Milton Friedman's uh, 1970 op-ed where he said the only obligation of a business is to make profits for its shareholders. That's the social obligation. And then uh, Meckling and Jensen in 1976, you know, trying to solve the agency problem, you know, which is kind of an algorithmic intervention, you know, like, wow, this is this problem that owners of, you know, management of firms and the owners have become separated. Let's see if we can align their interests by uh, getting more of the compensation 
of uh, executives in company stock, so they'll be aligned with the shareholders. Before long, you have this gospel of shareholder value maximization, and that's when the hollowing out of America begins. We change from you know, lift people up, invest in people, to people are a cost to be eliminated because there's only one goal. So we tweaked the algorithm and then it output uh, what the algorithm uh, was programmed to That's output. That's right. You know, Dow 22500, Meckling and Jensen. You know, opioid ep epidemic, Meckling and Jensen too. You know, because we've actually, we've built a financial system that we're optimizing for the wrong things. We're telling CEOs, get rid of people as a cost uh, if, if that's what it takes. Uh, create crappy products, you know. United Airlines, drag your passenger off by the, uh, you know, the feet if, if there's a higher paying passenger uh, that you have to accommodate. You make an interesting point just back to the post-war period, which was that that investment uh, strategy led to tremendous growth, tremendous wealth creation, broad-based prosperity. It wasn't some, um, you know, just redistributive uh, uh, social policy that hampered growth. It actually was a tremendous growth driver. That's right. I mean, it, it, you know, if you look at history, there was a set of policies, you know, and to me, the, the center of those policies are one, solve real problems, you know, i.e., oh, my God, let's rebuild Europe and Japan. You know, we invested in that. Uh, second, you know, invest in people. And now we have, you know, actually, I, I quote in my book Larry Fink's uh, shareholder letter from early 2017. And he, he really talks about share buybacks and why th this idea that companies say, well, there's no really good investments uh, to make in the real economy. A and he says, sure, there are. Invest in your people. You know, invest in training them. You know, here's a guy who's the world's largest asset manager, or, or claims to be. I think there may be a bigger one in China now, uh, but uh, uh, BlackRock. And he's saying, yeah, invest in your people. And we have forgotten that. We, we, you know, we have built a system where the, the master algorithm gone wrong says treat people as a cost to be eliminated. And then we have all these consequences and we're not dealing with it. Uh, you know, Facebook at least is trying to deal with it. And, you know, they're getting all this heat from you know, the media, from government. But meanwhile, you know, the people who are manipulating our economy – uh, in a very bad direction, uh, you know, using many of the same, you know, technologies, the same techniques, you know, because again, this is where I wanted to bring out this notion of Facebook as an analogy. Fake news is a way of driving, you know, attention, results. If you're a spammer, you want advertising revenue. If you're, you know, Russia, you want to influence the election. But think about the way that financial markets work. You know, this, this is an, a real economy of goods and services exchanged by people, which is the one that we really care about. This is the world of Adam Smith's invisible hand, uh, you know, where everybody's pursuing their own advantage, but it somehow seems to work magically. And then there's the world of what our financial markets have become, which is a financial betting market that doesn't really care about that real market anymore. You know, only about 15% of what's called investment goes into hiring people, building factories, making products. You know, a huge amount of it is buying a financial instrument and hoping it will go up or, you know, creating fake news to make it go up. And, you know, here's a good example of this. Think about this. Apple, more profitable than any company in history. Carl Icahn buys $3.6 billion worth of Apple shares. 
Did Apple need his money? Is that an investment? No. That's just that's just a bet. It's a bet. It's a bet. Exactly. Oh. And 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 Carl's basically saying, Apple, we want you to take uh, some of your money. Don't spend it on lowering the cost of your products, uh, which should be consumer surplus. Don't spend it on paying more for your, you know, for your people. Don't bring your factories home. Don't repatriate your money from overseas so that you'd have to pay taxes. Use it for share buybacks, and then I'll get some of it. And and there's a, there's this sort of story. Well, that's good for investors, but but investors are a lot like spammers in these this class of investor. You know, I go, it's that's not an investor at all. You know, and of course everybody goes along with this system because it's good for the moneyed class, but we're reaching the end of the rope on that system. So Tim, let me let me turn you because I, I think your analysis, your, your your diagnosis is spot on, and but I also think actually the more provocative part is your um, prescription because you actually have some historical analogies where this turned in the other direction, where the strengthening of the commons, as some people call it, or the positive uh, externalities. Um, I think one of your best examples, and you and you know you lived through it, and at some sense you know helped make it happen, is the open source software movement where many of the progenitors of what we now take as the you know global information you know infrastructure were not based on this sort of maximization um, uh, algorithm they actually were putting things out into a much more um, uh, common and shared shared economy if you could if you could connect that to what might be a solution in this financial in this financial market I think that'd be a huge service yeah absolutely I mean I think the first uh, thing to understand uh, you know Microsoft, first came into to prominence as a result of, of an unintentional act of generosity by IBM. They were trying to play catch up in the in the personal computer market, which they didn't, or it was called microcomputers at the time. They didn't think it, was, it the market really mattered. And so in playing catch up, they basically built a personal computer out of commodity parts and they published the specs and it took over the world, right? And what happened was that Microsoft realized this. They provided the software for it, and they realized that was a new source of lock-in software rather than hardware, which was IBM's control point. And they, you know, became an extractive monopoly over over the next few decades. And what happened was that, uh, you know, basically the developer. I mean, it was a great the PC was a great platform for developers until it wasn't because Microsoft took too much of the value for themselves. And so all the developers went over this new thing, the internet, where it wasn't at all clear you could make money, but you could, you know, it was it was like, you know, the old American West. You could go somewhere where you could do things without having to ask permission. And again, we saw the story repeat where there was this explosion of innovation. And now we see companies like Google sort of closing down the opportunities for developers, competing with other sites. Although I think Google did one thing that really kind of illustrates a good understanding of some of these dynamics of the need to, to create value as well as to capture it. And that's Android, you know, because they took a look at the next technology wave, which was what Apple was doing with the smartphone, which was really very similar to what Microsoft had done. And Apple, you know, Steve Jobs had come out of that era. And, you know, I mean, I heard one story that he had told somebody, you know, we, we can own this you know, this the future even more than Microsoft ever did. Mm -hmm. and, and Google took a look at that and said, wow, the way to break that is to give something away. 
and they gave away Android, which which sort of kept the ecosystem open, created a huge amount of value for a lot of other firms, and preserved the kind of ecosystem that the Google had, had had been thriving in. So companies can have that foresight, but I think there's also a set of Apart from this, you know, idea that well, you give stuff away in order to create value. There's a lot of other ways to create value. Uh, you know, I think Amazon demonstrates, you know, just how you know relentless customer, uh, you know, what they call customer obsession. You know, where they're creating value, more and more value for customers. And uh, you know, in contrast, I had let me give you an example. I had one investor say, I just invested in a uh, startup that will get rid of you know, 30% of call center jobs, you know, excitedly. And I said, uh, so have you used a call center? Why don't you make them better? You know, and, and you think about what Amazon does. They put 45,000 robots in, in their factory. It's probably up to 100,000 now in their, in their warehouses. And they hired 250,000 more people when they did that. Why? Because they didn't say, wow, we can get rid of a third of our, our warehouse workers. They said, Wow, if we have robots, we can put more products on next day delivery. We can get a whole bunch of products on same day delivery. You know, they basically up the ante. And that's the, the, you know, kind of the lesson from the deep history of technology, which is if you use productivity, technological productivity to do more, you actually create a more vibrant economy that works for everybody. You know, when, when, when they built these mechanical weaving machines that the Luddites were afraid of, we made more cloth. We invented fashion. You know? I mean, or we, you know, fashion had already been invented, but we democratized fashion so that ordinary people got to, uh, you know, ha have a, a rich variety of clothing, uh, you know, and... That only the kings would have had previously. That's right. And same thing with food. You know, you look at, you know, we, we didn't go, go, okay, you now get your you know, your potatoes or your corn gruel uh, and we're done, you know, we got all that more cheaply. You know, we said, no, look at all this amazing variety. You, you know, you don't have to be Louis the 14th to have fruit in the middle of winter. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I go, why would it be different today? You know, and it will be different today only because we have this short termism, which is kind of a sickness that we've encoded into our financial system. Okay, so this is so this is now back to coding the algorithm of the marketplace itself to yeah. output the the outcomes that that we actually want to see, which has to do with um, you know prosperity, inclusive um, you know I income rising you know broadly, you know basic needs being met around the world, uh, uh, you know prosperity and, and and growth and and a sustainable economy. And so, what are the mechanisms that can actually you know what are the tweaks to that algorithm that we might do now? Well, I think what's the, the what's the open source? I'm I'm toying with open source finance. I don't know whether that well, that, I, that resonates with you. Well, I'm thinking about some of the the. I mean, open maybe there's something in open source finance, and there are things like crowdfunding, which are are sort of hacks on this system. But you, you know what you see, you know, hack, there are hacks on the incredible flaws of the system. You know, like more than I think it's what two thirds of GoFundMe's are for health care costs. You know, so we basically, you know, we're reinventing peer-to-peer -peer welfare, you know, rather than going, how do we make the whole world so more prosperous? The first thing I would do is I think we have to decouple executive compensation and short-term stock price maximization. And there's a couple of ways to do that. I mean, you know, I think it's probably very hard 
to reverse it by fiat. But I think we certainly could do things like long-term capital gains is five years. Maybe there's an even better rate for 10 years. You know? mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Maybe you do, just like you do with 401ks, there's, you can only have so much uh, goes to the top. Uh, you have to you do, do, do means, you know, means testing across the, the employee population. And you could say, okay, if you're going to give a lot of stock to the top management, you have to give a lot of stock to the employees because, hey, the CEO compensation can only be 15% of, of, of the entire uh, stock grant. Yeah, because right now, the way all of the stock systems, even in Silicon Valley, they're all incredibly highly weighted towards the top. Each level down in the company hierarchy gets an order of magnitude less stock, even in a Silicon Valley company, which does stock options for everyone. Now, you've got all these companies that give stock options to the CEO and nothing to everyone else. What if we said, no, actually, means testing says that 85% of any stock grants given to employees have to go you know, only 15% can go to, to people above this level in the management, you know, or, or something like that. That would be an interesting way. So you go, okay, you have to, sh- if this is your mechanism for co- compensating people, you have to share it more widely. Because fact is, um, you know, there's a story, well, will you take away the incentives? And I go, that's BS. Look at the history of Silicon Valley. You know, Gordon Moore and, uh, you know, Andy Grove and all those guys, they weren't, or David Packard, they weren't going, you know, a million dollars, that's not cool. A billion, now that's cool, you know, that line from the social network. You know, you've got all these Silicon Valley entrepreneurs who think that unless they make billions, they're failures. You know, you've got all these, you know, these CEOs, you know, who are all, you know, quite well paid making 15, 20, 30 times the lowest paid employee. And now they, they think they should be paid five, 700 times the lowest paid employee. Why? Well, you're a sort of, a, I would guess, a little bit of an outlier, maybe a truth teller, that government actually has a role to play both in this regulatory sense that you're talking about, also in the investment sense. I mean, you reminded me that uh, Google had a government grant from the National Science Foundation uh, that helped them get going. So uh, the role for government, I think, is 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 about to become a, a, a big issue in Silicon Valley. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I do think that there is um, you know, a lot of what I try to do in the book is to provide tools for uh kind of redrawing the map because uh, what what's wrong with a lot of the narrative about say government is it's like a multiple choice exam you know where none of the answers seem to fit but you have to choose one or the other and i go why is that what a lot of what i've done in my career whether it was the way i brought the you know there was this discussion about free software and i brought it i said well but what about the internet you know you're leaving that out you know when all you're talking about is linux you know, because they had the, the very narrow political framing. When after the dot-com bust, I said, well, what about all these companies that survived? What did they do differently? And we see it right now. You know, you look at a, a company like REI, which is a co-op. And in any real economy measure, you know, same store sales, uh, sales growth, uh, they outperform their public market competitors. But nobody cares in financial markets that this is actually showing us that this is actually a better model, right? Uh, because there's no stock to be traded. There are all these kinds of positive externalities that accrue to these kinds of 
models and it's and your open source example is is a good one and and these co-ops and and worker ownership you know where um i think you said you're interested in models where the value accrues broadly not just to the particular firm or, or individual yeah. um but, but can, and, can we come back to this government point i'm sorry oh, I, I i kind of went a little <laughs> bit away from it i was kind of talking about the, the way we pick from this menu and and we have this uh set of ideas that uh, you know, government intervention is bad. And, and I go, well, maybe it's because it's done badly. You know? And uh, first of all, we need to look at all the, as you say, the, the government inventions, uh, interventions that are good. You know, go, you know uh, Silicon Valley is, is particularly shameless for playing libertarian when, you know, the, the foundations of, of digital computing as we know it today, the, the von Neumann architecture that was developed at the Institute for Advanced Studies was put into the public domain because it was funded by the U.S. government. Uh, you know, the Internet funded by the U.S. government, uh, you know, GPS, you know, the basis of all these location based services, self-driving cars, you know, uh, funded by the U.S. government. Hey, the DARPA Grand Challenge, which kicked off the self-driving car race, you know, the, the, the digital libraries project that gave rise to Google, uh, you know, all these things are, are you know, there's, I think there's a, there's a whole lot of I haven't, you know, there's a woman named Mariana Mazzucato, uh, uh, an economist who has uh, kind of looked at the role of government. She has a wonderful book called The Entrepreneurial State, and she talks about even you know all the things that Apple depended on. So I, 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 you know, we have to get rid of that narrative, but at the same time, we do have to recognize that government is so far behind the times in the way that they, you know, regulate. In you know this, you know, every Silicon Valley company measures things. You know, and responds to that measurement and is always trying to learn. And, you know, we're still demonstrating the best practices of 19th century British government, you know, uh, you know, where, where you, you know, and, and sure, that was the state of the art at the time. And it let, it made it possible for the British to run this fabulous empire, right? It was all very, you know, well run, but. You know, frankly, you know, the idea that you put in place a vast bureaucracy, that you have, you know, rigid rules that have to be followed, you know, it's just out of step with what we know how to do today. So I actually talk a lot about, uh, you know, how would we make regulation uh, more like the way that, say, Google search quality acts as a regulatory system. But I also think that there's there's a huge uh, part of my work which is involved in my wife Jen Palka's startup Code for America which is also just bringing that user focus that we've learned from Silicon Valley companies follow your users and then take that feedback back into your operations you know that's what so a more a more effective government would also be one that could generate more popular support um, Mm -hmm. if people saw that that things were that's working and yeah yeah and and Code for America and the U.S. Digital Service, I think, have been instrumental in trying to um, in trying to get that get that rolling. The other sort of strand of this, I think, is to see this opportunity maybe more broadly. And you you had a good line early in the book that said uh, you were talking about unicorns and you know what things work and and what things you know what things go to the moon and what things you know s- stall. And you said. Something like, trust me, Google Glass will be back when Google learns to focus on community health workers, not fashion models. And I thought that was a very good insight into where the future opportunities and the future growth potential 
might be in all these. What did you What did you mean by that? Well, you know, I think Google got you know had Apple envy. They wanted to have a cool consumer you know uh, electronics device, and that was foolish. You know, I, I just it was so striking at the time. You know, I think somebody at Google said. Uh, you know, if UPS drivers are using this, we've failed. And I was going, no, if UPS drivers were using it, they had won. You know, mm-hmm. they had an opportunity to create this new category of useful device. And and this is there's really something that, that I think people need to understand about augmented reality, which is that the idea of the visual, you know, overlays and what you could potentially do is a bit of a distraction. Because the fundamental force of technology is augmentation. You know, the first industrial revolution, well, actually, actually all the way back to, you know, fire was augmenting our muscles, right? Augmenting what we could do physically. But there's also been, you know, 12,000 years of cognitive augmentation, uh, you know, from, you know, speech, through writing, uh, through the printed book, through the internet. And on that arc of knowledge, a lot of what happens is eventually knowledge gets embodied into tools. And I, I use the example of, of uh, you know, Uber and Lyft for this because the Uber or Lyft driver is an augmented driver. The reason why you can have this new approach uh, to delivering transportation where there's this marketplace, on-demand marketplace of drivers who show up when you need them is because those drivers don't actually – have to know their way around like a, a cab, taxi cab driver did in the past. They, they can just show up part time because they're augmented with an app that tells them how to, you know how to pick up their passenger first. That's the first you know matching you know finding the passenger in real time. But then how to get to whatever destination that passenger asked them to, and that's that's augmented reality. That's augmentation. That's cognitive augmentation. So now take that into the world of, uh, you know, a heads-up display like Google Glass, and you can start to say, wow, yeah, there's more and more things that we could do. I, I love the partners in health model, for example, where they, 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 they go, okay, we're working in developing countries where there's not good hospital infrastructure. We're going to take people out of the community, give them training, and have them work in their community doing first-order you know, triage and helping people and interventions. And you go, we could use that here. And now imagine a community health worker uh, equipped with the equivalent of Google Glass uh, who can – you know, they could actually do it with a phone too. You know, but they're going out. First of all, the patients are increasingly monitored by sensors, and you go, "Oh, uh, wow, Mrs. Jones isn't taking her medication." Uh, and, and you know, we now know, and of course, this is being in, in, encoded into the healthcare system that often preventative interventions will actually save you a lot of money. You know, you go, "Okay, if we don't show up, you know, it's way better for us to use on-demand to send the community health worker out uh, to see Mrs. Jones." than it is for Mrs. Jones to show up at the emergency room a week from now and then the week after and the week after. And you can say, wow, you know, with this, all this technology, we could completely reinvent the model of healthcare. And then we should ask ourselves, what's keeping us from doing that? You know, and, and this is where regulation often does get in the way. You know, you look at some of these attempts to reinvent the world and uh, you realize that you know, we're, we're too slow sometimes to, to search out all of the possibilities that, that, you know, what is now possible. 
Well, that's it. That's interesting. So just to bring this all, all full circle, there is sort of an attempt to to reinvent the world underway that, you know, goes by the shorthand of the sustainable development goals, the UN's, you know, 17 goals, you know, end poverty, universal health care, universal access to energy, all all, you know, very ambitious, far reaching goals. And now there's a burgeoning movement of, you know, tech for good, um, you know, blockchain solutions for every one of the sustainable developments, AI solutions for every one of the sustainable development goals. And, you know, I think all of that is immensely promising. There is, I think you've got, you've put your finger on sort of an, you know, more, even more fundamental tweak that has to happen to this, you know, kind of super algorithm, um, which is, you know, how to make sure that those innovations actually do promote the the common good and not just, yeah. not just any one company. The thing that I really want to put out there, though, is, is I don't think we want to do it from do-goodism. There's this great phrase that Joseph Stieglitz uh, picked up from Alexis de Tocqueville in, in the P, a piece he wrote that gave rise to the term the 1% uh, and the 99%. Uh, it was actually Stieglitz who came up with this. I didn't know that. Um, but he, he ended up by quoting de Tocqueville talking about self-interest properly regarded as the genius of America. Because self-interest properly regarded means that you invest in your community. You invest in solving problems before they become too big. You know, and, and you, you look at an entrepreneur like Elon Musk, uh, who's a great example of self-interest properly regarded. Because, you know, he, I, he was so charming up at TED this year where he said, I just want to make a future that, where I won't be sad. You know, but you think about the things that he's gone to work on. You know, it's like, well, you know, I'm really worried about climate change. You know, what can I do about that? Well, let's kickstart the electric car market. It's just sputtering. It's not really going anywhere. You know, and he gets everybody excited about it and kickstarts the whole industry. Oh, let's, you know, uh, you know, solar roofs. Uh, let's. We need to go to space. We need, uh, you know, neural, you know, connections to computers so we can keep up with AI. You know, he's kind of got that. You know, how do I find this self-interest properly regarded? And I think the same thing, you know, it's like, how do we harness the power of capitalism uh, rather than, you know, kind of go, oh, well, we're trying to suppress it. You know, I'm not talking about suppressing capitalism in order to um, make a better world. I'm talking about harnessing capitalism. Look at Google, you know, it's like, you know, they figured out how to solve a real problem, which was the web was getting too big. Uh, discovery was a problem. And they made themselves an incredibly successful company by pointing to other people and helping to lift them up and make more money for them. Uh, you know, and that's what I think the platforms that we're building today, you know, the great technology platforms, they need to be thinking about how am I, I'm getting successful by enabling our economy, not by just extracting from it. And, and I think there's also so many great stories out of, um, you know, technology. One I'm, I'm very fond of is Zipline, uh, which is basically a, a startup that's using drones and on-demand uh, to deliver, uh, you know, blood and critical uh, me medicines in countries without developed hospital infrastructure. You know, they've raised a boatload of venture capital. They're solving an amazing problem. They're showing us how we could totally rethink healthcare in places that don't have it today. And, uh, you know, how much more interesting is that than will be the Uber of dry cleaning, you know, which ended up just burning a bunch of capital and, you know, going nowhere. 
You know, it's like here's a company that's solving solving real problems is actually the way to be more successful. There you go. That, I think, is a good place to stop, and that is a good uh, message to, to leave it with. Thank you, Tim Riley. The book is WTF. How do you, what's, the, what's the right intonation of WTF? Is it WTF? It could be WTF. <laughs> yeah. What's the Future Minds Up to Us by Tim O'Reilly. It's coming out on October 10th. Thank you, Tim. Very good luck to you, and thanks for being with us. All right. Thank you. That's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment. Special thanks to our editor, Isaac Silk. This podcast has been a production of Impact Alpha. Be sure to sign up for Impact Alpha's newsletter, The Brief, providing daily news and actionable intelligence for the growing number of people working to build an inclusive, resilient, and sustainable future. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh. On behalf of David Bank, thanks for listening to this episode of Returns on Investment. We look forward to speaking again soon. Thank you.